Verse 18 is uh, the, the emphasis of the sermon, but I want to read verses 13 through 20. And hear the word of God. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be found in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you, uh, even as uh, we just sung together, that uh, there is a sweetness uh, to these places and these gatherings of worship. And we pray that as we uh, come under the teaching of your word concerning your churches, that we might have an ear to hear what you have to say to the churches, and that you might build up, instruct, and encourage, as well as rebuke uh, and exhort. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this was a sermon which I hoped to preach last week, and providentially I was hindered. I uh, actually was a last-minute decision for me to stay home. I was prepared to come, but the elders said, "You you better, you better stay home." And uh, I'm thankful to the elders for capably and ably filling the pulpit. I'm always telling them that they are able to preach, and I think they demonstrated that they are. And I, uh, and and perhaps we'll see more of that in the future, at least as necessity arises. But. Nevertheless, I'm thankful to be back here and now preaching what I had hoped to preach last week, which is a sermon at the turn of the year. And I I seem to remember I did the same thing last year. As the year turns, it it is a time for me not to do what the world does, which is to develop uh, New Year's resolutions that don't even last four hours, uh, but to reflect again on my priorities and commitments, and at the same time to ask myself, which is, uh, it's a good thing to ask yourself as a Christian throughout the year, but especially at the beginning, what is it that I hope to accomplish? And especially, what is it that I am praying to God that he might accomplish among us in this church? Uh, If only because these are some of the convictions that I plan to share at the annual congregational meeting. uh, At my, uh, during my, uh, my pastor's report. Now, the word that I would use to express my own uh, growing conviction about what I hope to see in this church, as well as to see in myself, is growth. Growth. In, in a sense, then, this is, as I indicated in Sunday school, going to be a sermon on church growth, though I doubt it will be like a sermon on church growth you would find in most churches. Growth is a personal commitment to growth. Uh, in the sense that Paul tells Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. But especially in the sense that I hope to see this church grow. Mark Dever in his book, The Practices, or uh, Nine Practices, I think, of a Healthy Church, I think it's chapter 8, although I don't remember, uh, says that healthy churches grow. 
Because growth is a sign of life and churches that are alive grow. Whereas decay and decline is a sign of death. Still, we must always factor in the mystery of God's ways and his providence and the element of the remnant. There are times when God's church is mighty and strong, even though she be but few. But I think we would have to agree and to acknowledge that this is not what we are taught to expect or to seek from Scripture. In other words, as we just sung together, we long to see your churches full. We, we understand that we acknowledge there are days of the remnant. And who can question that we are living in days of the remnant? But are we to be faulted at the same time if we are praying to God that he might cause his church to grow? In other words, to cause uh, the power of the kingdom of God to take this small mustard seed and make it fill the whole world. All of us who are Christians are aware of the power and the potential of the kingdom of God, having experienced it ourselves. It is not just power, but it's like dynamite. We know what it is capable of, and we ought to look for it in the churches. And so as we look for growth, going into this new year, the question which I ask myself is this, namely, what is the fundamental conviction out of which I as the pastor and you as as the members, are to look for growth. In other words, does the Bible tell us how it is meant to happen, or whether it will happen? And it is on this point, and in answer to this question, that I find uh, no more encouraging words in Scripture than those five words which Christ uttered to Peter, namely, I will build my church. I will build my church. Because those five words form the basis of my conviction, a growing conviction, that I, uh, nor we, do not labor in vain. No Christian who labors in Christ's kingdom labors in vain. The church's mission in this world cannot fail, for he who leads her is faithful and strong, and his promise is, I will build my church. And so here's a sermon on those five words. Words of the Savior to Peter and the Apostles. The church, you might say, an infant form. Just 12 members in those days. A remnant, if there ever was one. Just a few disciples gathered at the feet of the Master. Even Jesus himself. If ever there was a day of small things, this was it. But this was only the beginning. And Christ had much in store for his infant church. What would become of these men? Of course, he puts them to work. In building his church, he uses their labors as we find in the Gospels and especially in Acts and beyond. Think, for instance, of what Jesus says to Peter at the end of John's Gospel, which we read as the scripture reading. His commission to Peter was, if he loves Jesus, he is to feed the sheep and even to die for Christ, as indeed he did. And so he'll use the labors of the apostles. But the promise is not that they will build the church, but that he will build it. I will build my church, he says to Peter and to the disciples. Considering then the subject uh, being that of the church, which Christ promises to build, our first interest is in knowing what is meant by the church. When Christ promises to build the church, we ask, what did he intend to build? 
And there's simply no question but that the natural, of the, the natural meaning of the word was what he meant here. The church here as ecclesia means an assembly or a gathering, just as we find in this passage. There was an assembly of twelve disciples with their Lord. Though in this context, the idea of the church has explicitly Christian connotations. It is to be seen, obviously, as a gathering of Christians under the lordship of Jesus. That is, if you consider the manner in which Christ brings up the church, namely in response to Peter's uh, confession that you are the son of the living God, it is clear that Christ defines the church as consisting of those who, like Peter, confess Jesus as Lord. A gathering or an assembly of Christian confessors, and thus who gather together in order to worship and to learn uh, of him, just as these men were doing, again, in the church in its most infant form and days. And Christ's message to these men is not one of despair, but one of hope. He looks upon his little flock and he assures them, he assures them that he will build her into something mighty, something great under his strong hand and direction. I will build my church. But you notice here, he states this as a future event. I will build my church. Thus he places the growth of the church under his sovereign direction in the future. And it becomes clear when you keep reading this exchange or this conversation between Jesus and Peter, which doesn't end in verse 20, but it continues. That Jesus is telling Peter, the confessor, that certain events must happen first and then he will build his church. Jesus says something in the following verses, again, in the midst of the same conversation with Peter, that was objectionable even to Peter, the confessor, that the Christ who would build his church must first suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. Yet Jesus, in saying this, clarifies to Peter and to us how it is he intends to build his church, or at least seeing the building of the church as something which he places in the future, the fundamental thing that must happen first, or the fundamental prerequisite to his building. First, he must lay down his life for his sheep in order to redeem them, and then he promises to gather them into one flock and one body under his lordship. And if you think of it, we have the record of both in the Gospels and Acts. In the, in, in the Gospels, we have the record of his life, his work of redemption, laying down his life for his sheep. In the, in the record of Acts, we have the record of him gathering those whom he redeemed, again, under his lordship, into his church. That is, beloved, the program of salvation which Christ outlines First he redeems, then he gathers. And the work of gathering is the work of building. That is how he builds the church. By gathering those whom he redeemed. And so the point that I am making is that we should see the connection between what is said in verse 18, I will build my church, and what he says in verse 21. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And following that, we see what Peter has to say and what Christ says in response. Seeing the promise to build the church and the necessity of his death taken together, we discover that the church 
is not a secondary or unimportant consideration viewed from the standpoint of salvation, but that it is intimately tied to the whole idea of salvation. Jesus, seen as the Savior, is the Savior of his church, his bride, and his body. And so having defined the church in this way, we see that the church is his possession. The fundamental uh, assertion of the passage is that the church belongs to him. It is my church, Jesus says. I will build my church. It belongs to him and it exists only because of his work in saving them. In other words, there would be no church but for Jesus and his death on the cross. His intervention into the affairs of men, rescuing them from the power of the devil and gathering them into one body under his lordship. And thus we realize, looking at the church as an institution, that it is not a human one, but a divine one. It comes to be solely at the result of his initiative. And likewise, her continued existence and progress in this world depends solely upon him and his continued interest in the church. How thankful we are then to find him saying, as he says here, I will build my church. These are words which ensure success. To think of he who builds is to be assured that this is a building that will always stand. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against her, as though to say nothing can make her to fall, not even the powers of hell itself. Admittedly, uh, these words, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, are difficult to understand. They're open to various interpretations, which I am not interested in exploring here, but the general sense, in light of what Christ is promising that he will build his church, is clear enough. That not even the forces of hell can overthrow or thwart the mission of the church. Not so long as she is led on by Jesus, her captain and master builder. For to prevail against the church in that case would be to prevail against him. And that is not possible. Not now that he has had the final say on the cross. There is no victory which hell can gain against him. You see, not us, but him. Nor was there ever, given who he is and who he became for the church. To contend against him, the church is to contend, contend against him, and that is to lose. Still, we know Satan in his craft and might has tried again and again. His great desire and his great work is in tearing down churches. But one of the, no, the most notable facts of Christian history is simply that he has never succeeded. Not once. Where do we ever find Satan succeeding in overthrowing the church in this world? We never do. That is not to say that no church has ever fallen or ceased to be. We read of this or that church closing its doors or becoming apostate. But even then, a true scriptural ecclesiology, that is, a scriptural view of the church, will tell us that the end of the church Particular churches is not the work of Satan, it is the work of Christ. For he is the one, he tells us in Revelation, who has the authority to remove the lampstand and not Satan. And so Jesus tells us in another place in Matthew, do not fear he who can kill the body, but he who kills the body and casts the soul into the fires of hell. Yes, fear him, not Satan. 
If anything, you see, Jesus is emboldening his disciples here uh, with the thought that they have no need to fear Satan nor the forces of hell itself as the church is being built through their labors under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is instilling, if anything, in these disciples and in we along with them a sense of defiance in the face of our worst enemies. A picture not only of defiance, but of ultimate success. Let hell do its worst. Every assault against the church will fail so long as Jesus stands in the midst of her. Here too are words which define the church's true priorities. What is the church supposed to do once Jesus has died and been raised and gone to the right hand of the Father? What is his program for the church? What is she supposed to be? Well, could it be any clearer in light of this passage and in light of what we find in Acts and in the remainder of the New Testament? The church, beloved, is supposed to confess Jesus in the face of a hostile world and to maintain boldly that profession no matter what. With the unwavering conviction that so long as she does so, that Christ is standing in the midst of her to protect her and to lead her and to guide her on unto heaven itself. If you, if you think of uh, the description of the Christian life in the book of Hebrews, which we studied for some time, and the repeated exhortations throughout that book, they were always the same. Maintain your profession in the face of trials, in the face of temptations, in the face of an uncertain future. Hold fast to Jesus. In confessing him, do not give up your confession, even as you seek to come together and encourage one another. Likewise, these words distinguish the true church from the false. For there are many churches in name only, just as there were many who confessed a wrong belief of Christ in Peter's day. There have always been multitudes who confess Christ wrongly, who claimed he was a prophet, as we find here, or a teacher, but who failed to see the real truth about him, that he is the son of the living God, even God himself. People who call themselves Christians because of some loose adherence to Christ. But it is not they to whom Christ speaks. In another place, he tells us that his sheep know his voice. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Let me read those verses. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up by some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of his sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You see how those words apply here. Christ has no interest in leading any other than his own, nor do his own have any interest in in, in following any but him. But to them he speaks, and he has much to say, and they are always ready to listen, for when he speaks, they both know and hear his voice. And to them he promises that they will never falter under the pressures of this age, however great they may be. And so these are words which are full of encouragement for the weary pastor and layman, wondering what God might have in store for the church in the present age. 
for the laborer in the vineyard, whoever wonders when God might supply the increase. In other words, when he might behold real growth in the church. And the answer to him is always the same. In his own timing, for the wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. That's John chapter 3. But one thing we can, be, we can be sure of, Jesus will always be true to his word. He will always be building his church. He will always be looking after his church. He will never leave her nor forsake her. But next we might notice how he intends to build the church. And there are many things that we might notice from this passage. The first thing is what he says uh, to Peter after saying, or excuse me, just before saying I will build my church, he says, on this rock. He plans to build on this rock. The question which naturally arises is, what rock? And so much confusion has surrounded this point. There is, for instance, the Roman Catholic heresy, which teaches that the rock uh, was Peter, the first pope, in essence, and from him you have the succession of the popes after him, thus granting the authority of the true church only to Rome. But uh, what I find is that even within Protestantism, uh, there is not clear agreement about what is meant by the rock, if not the pope, which we are all agreed about that. Well, again, uh, just as we did with the gates of hell, let us here uh, take the general and the obvious sense. Jesus is promising, I will build my church. That makes him the builder. And if he says that Peter is the rock, that means that Peter, in some sense, becomes the raw material upon which Christ builds the church. Peter, if you will, is to be the foundation, similar to what is said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, when uh, Paul tells us that the church is built upon the apostles and the prophets. They were to be engaged in a foundation-laying ministry. So in what sense is Peter the rock upon which Christ builds? Well, for one thing, it is clear from the early chapters of Acts that Peter, and this is even clear here in the Gospels and at the end of the Gospels, and then you carry it into Acts, it's uh, perfectly clear that Peter was the foremost apostle in the earliest activity of the church. He was the great apostle. He was the man whom God was using most and most mightily. And thus we see God was using him to lay the foundation upon which other men would build. For instance, Paul in the later chapters of Acts. But how did he do so? That is, how did God build this foundation through the labors of Peter? Well, in the same way he does so here, in confessing Christ as Lord. Peter confesses Christ, and Christ responds with the promise that he is Peter, and upon this rock he will build his church. The sense is clearly that it is Peter, the confessor, who becomes the rock and distinguishes him from those who confess Christ wrongly. And thus his confession is as important as his person. It is his confession that qualifies him to become the rock. But again, do not shortcut the importance of Peter himself. Jesus tells Peter that he is the rock and that he will use him to build his church Indeed, to do his first work. And that is, once more, exactly what we find in Acts. In the first chapters of Acts, we find the preaching and the ministry and the labors of Peter.
But that was only the beginning. Peter would be instrumental in getting things going, but his labor wasn't everything. After Peter, we realized Christ is continuing to fulfill his work. He keeps building. He's not ever laying the foundation, for that has already been laid by Peter's labors. But he continues to build in exactly the same way. By the same testimony concerning who Jesus is, that is through the apostolic preaching. Next we notice how this confession arises in Peter and in others. And this tells us how the church will grow. As one by one, more people like Peter confess Jesus as Lord. We see how Peter came by it negatively, Jesus says, not by flesh and blood. That is not by consulting worldly wisdom. For the world will always have its own opinions about Jesus and about the church. But the church and the Christian are not formed by earthly tools. They come to be only when the wisdom of heaven comes to bear and comes into the life of man by the Father as with Peter here. Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood have not revealed these things to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It is the Father, Jesus says, who reveals the true identity of the Son to us and thus makes us Christians, just as it is the Father who, or excuse me, the Son who reveals the Father to us. And that is not something Jesus says here. And it would be well that the church would understand this point. This is not something that flesh and blood can offer. This is not something that you can find in the world or from the world. Not something that the world can offer nor comprehend. No one ever came to a true knowledge of the Son of God by anything he found in this world. For the world is now as it was then, utterly confused and deceived as to who Jesus is, lying in the power of the evil one. Likewise, no one ever found a place in the church like Peter by earthly means. Nor will the church herself ever advance in this world as the kingdoms of this age do. When Christ promises to build his church... We must see these words as the result of heaven's activity and as the result of heaven's initiative every bit as much as Peter's confession. And the primary activity of heaven with respect to man in building the church is that of revealing, revealing the identity of the son through the word of God so that men might be blessed like Peter and with him find a true place in the church. Another thing we see about the growth of the church, how it is meant to happen, is that it will occur, Jesus says, in the midst of great opposition and never otherwise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why else would Christ speak in this way, having just promised that he would build his church if he did not envision the work of building as occurring in the midst of great opposition? It is clear that he envisions a great conflict occurring as he builds his church and indeed as a result of building the church. Thank God the work of building the church is ever a victorious one. But let us not, beloved, mistake victory for peace. Jesus is telling us that there will always be conflict and there will always be opposition so long as there there is a church in this world. That the church and the Christian will always be engaged in warfare. She will always be contending against flesh and blood. And even, he tells us, against the forces and the animus of hell itself. The trials of the wilderness, 
If you think of the Exodus sermons in the evening, the trials of the wilderness will not cease until we enter our heavenly rest. There will always be struggle. There will always be conflict. There will always be opposition. And so it appears to use the language. Again, you understand why people are in difficulty over the exact meaning here. The gates of hell not prevailing against her. What exactly does that mean? But it would appear that Jesus is saying that the church is always under direct assault. In other words, the church is not seeking out the warfare, but the warfare is finding her. Much like Adam in the garden. He wished to be at peace in his communion with God, but Satan entered in and found him there. And so he's always sought to tear down what God is building. But Jesus tells us that the church is always built in defiance to all these forces. The world is against us. The prince of the air is set against us. All it would seem would have us to fail. Even we ourselves are not our best advocates. We often stand in our own way. And we commit countless self-inflicted wounds. Both upon ourselves and the church. But thank God I say again. The success of the church in this world is not made to depend upon man. Nor was it ever. Nor of the worst assaults against her ever able to prevail. The church, Jesus says, will ever stand and advance against every assault, even in the darkest days. Do you understand how encouraging this message is to the church today, as indeed it is to the church in every, cha- in every age? But the last thing I would notice about uh, how it is the church is to be built has to do with the keys of the kingdom, verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. These are things, Jesus says, that are entrusted to the church, even as he is building the church. So that we notice, Jesus again speaking to Peter as the representative of the apostles, that Peter the rock becomes Peter the gatekeeper. He's not just the uh, the foundation, but he's also the one who stands at the door. And here again we see the connection between Christology or soteriology and ecclesiology. That is to say, the connection, as I noted earlier, between salvation and the doctrine of the church. Because Jesus is reminding Peter that the church is something that must be entered, much like the kingdom of God. And if we truly comprehend Christ's words here to Peter, we will agree with the confession when it says that the church in this world is The kingdom of God. And that is because to belong to one is to belong to the other. The man who comes into the church in the way that Jesus is describing here. Being led in through through the activity of the gatekeeper. The doors being opened to him is the man who comes into the kingdom of God. He becomes a recipient of Christ's salvation and so He has a true and a rightful place in the church as one of Christ's disciples. And the church, therefore, Jesus says, must let him in. Everyone who confesses Christ like Peter. But that is a task, you see, that Christ entrusts, not to the church as a whole, but to Peter himself. And then to the other apostles and ministers after them. The task of letting in or of admitting into the church is what the keys represent. The keys are exercised when Christ is preached first and foremost. 
In other words, when his true identity, his power to save, uh, and so on, are made clear to men, just as we find Peter doing uh, in the earliest chapters of Acts, especially Acts chapter 2, his Pentecost sermon, he preaches Christ. What is the result? Many were added to the church uh, day by day. They were baptized, they were brought into the church. Having had Christ revealed to them through the preaching of Peter, Christ was using Peter to build the church. He entrusted to him the keys of the kingdom and in preaching Christ he opened the doors to heaven so that men might enter in. And so we see again that the work of building that Christ envisions is a work of gathering. Bring them into the church. Let all who respond in faith and repentance to the preaching be brought in. And in the best days of the church as we find in Peter's day many are being added day by day. But notice how they are added. The churches, let us see, and this is an important message to the church growth movement, and an important clarification to those coming out of it. The church is not an open society. Our interest is not in indiscriminate growth. What Jesus is telling us is that no one is able to belong to the church, that is to enter the church through the door, until he is made to belong. Christ, in investing his ministers with the authority to proclaim the seven-cent message, likewise invests them with the authority to recognize true Christian confession and bring only those people into the church and no one else. It is, you see, he tells us a real power that he invests into the church and its ministers and her officers. One, he tells us, which even heaven recognizes. And so the keys are seen to function in two primary ways. First, in preaching the gospel. And second, in admitting those who respond in faith and repentance into the church. Likewise, as a corollary to that, in excluding those who do not. Or else in expelling those whose place was false. Both activities, that of admitting and excluding, are seen as having, again, the sanction of heaven. Ideally, to admit one into the church is to acknowledge before men his place in the book of life and his his inheritance among the saints. But on the other hand, to exclude him from the church, either at the door or to cast him out, is is to declare that he has no inheritance with the saints. And so again, uh, this is an important message to those who adhere to the church growth movement of our day. Jesus tells us that the church must not seek to grow in any other way. She must not seek to fill her pews and her ranks with any who are not soundly saved. That is not what the Bible calls growth, beloved. You haven't grown simply because you've added to your numbers. You've actually weakened the church and you've placed her into a state of danger and decay. Growth in the true sense, the biblical, but also even more generally, is always a sign of life. And you can't build the church with men who are not alive to God in Christ. And thus we see the importance of the keys. The church must grow only through those who are soundly converted and with no one else. And so the picture then becomes clear as to how Christ intends to build. He speaks not only of uh, the eventuality and certainty of the church's growth and success in Acts and beyond but also of the methods which he will employ. 
And so long as we are, like Peter, engaged in the same work, we may proceed with the same confidence he did. Not that we will face no obstacles, for we know by Christ's own words that we will and that Peter did. And perhaps, like him, of the worst possible kinds. And so, no, not that we will find no obstacles, but that we cannot fail, no matter how great the obstacles. That the church will always grow. She will always be built by Christ's own words of promise. And it is upon this conviction and upon this rock that we proceed with confidence into the new church, that, uh, into the new year, excuse me, that the church will grow in just the way that God intends. Amen. And let us now come to the table.